Just to uh, repeat the announcements. <clears throat> oh, I neglected to mention, Lord willing, this uh, coming Thursday, I plan to be in Windsor for, the, for their midweek service. I'd like to take the church's greetings. Thank you. The focus of the month for uh, this month's collection for December is the European Projects Committee. There's Area Singh tonight in Avon Road at 7 p.m. This Wednesday, I believe, is singing since it would be the first Wednesday of the month. So we're planning to have that. And of course, it is December, so if you enjoy especially the, uh, the Christmas hymns from our hymnals, please join us. There is no choir practice today, and we will be starting services at 1.30. So we'll begin singing at 1.30 with the service itself starting at 2 p.m. That should give everyone plenty of time to get to Avon Road as well for the evening. There are four cards at the back, and I believe they would like to be, uh, Sister Vicki would like to have those sent out after today. So if you have not signed those cards in the back, please uh, consider doing so. I'll just uh, read, there's a little bit of an update on Brother Edwin Allensbach. I'll just read that for everyone. Brother Edwin, um, we thank the Lord that Brother Edwin has made considerable improvement this past week. Uh, he's in Lake Ridge Hospital, which is Oshawa General. Uh, he will most likely be there for another week. He can receive visitors, but is limited to one person per visit. He's on the fifth floor, 5G, room 5103. It's best to be there after 9.30 a.m. His lunch is from 11.30 to 12, and he now has a landline, so you can call him, um, and he can be reached. I have the phone number as well. So anyone who would like that contact information, please see me after services, and I can uh, give you those, those numbers. That's all the announcements I have. Let's bow our heads together before we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast seen fit to gather us in safety and in peace this morning in this building. We're thankful that we have this special place of worship where we can gather apart from the cares of this world to learn from Thee, to be open to the, to the leading and guiding of Thy Spirit, and to be encouraged and refreshed by visiting and fellowshipping with brothers and sisters and friends of the truth. Heavenly Father, be with those that could not gather with us today, those that are traveling as well. We're mindful of uh, many from our church that went to Glencoe and also Brother Doug, who's uh, visiting the church in Richmond Hill. Be with them, Heavenly Father, and bless their ministry uh, in those places. Heavenly Father, we also want to pray that thou be with those who are shut in or no longer able to gather with us. We know uh, that uh, this is a burden also, and Heavenly Father, we pray that thy spirit would be present with them as well, encouraging, uplifting, even as we anticipate a blessing from thy word this morning. Be with those that are suffering throughout this world, Heavenly Father. The world is full of conflict and hatred and violence. There are many that are innocent, that are suffering, and Heavenly Father, we look for the day when thou wilt return to right all wrongs and to again establish order in thy creation. Heavenly Father, even as the writer of Revelation says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But Heavenly Father, we know there are those that are not yet right with thee, and so we would pray that there would also be grace given to them that they may repent in time before thou wilt return. Be with us now as we would open thy word together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
as you may have gathered from the hymn that I selected, uh, I'd like to, at least for one more sermon, focus on the crucifixion of Christ, and I'll explain a little bit why. If you'll turn with me to Matthew's gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, I'd like to begin reading with the 33rd verse. Matthew 27, verse 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also, the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, This was the Son of God. I've read until the 54th verse. Let's kneel together for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee not only for gathering us as we have already prayed, but we thank Thee for preserving for us Thy word at the cost of toil, and even blood, 
that we would be able to freely read it whenever we will, to stop and look at those things that are recorded there and reflect on them, Heavenly Father, so that we may better understand Thee. Lord, help us to have a right idea of who Thou art and how great Thou art. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, because if we don't start there, we're likely to get everything wrong about this life. Heavenly Father, we pray that thy spirit would now be present with us as we would look together into these words, that we would consider this great, this singular event in the history of the world, the center of history, the center of religion, the center of culture, the center of everything. Heavenly Father, help us to make it also the center of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a tradition in our family on, as many of you know, of course, my wife comes originally from Mansfield, Ohio. And the Mansfield Church has a radio program that's broadcast every Sunday morning. And uh, it's been going now for, it's getting close to 65 years or so. I think it began in in the mid-50s. It's been quite a few years. And we listen to it every every morning. There's a different brother that shares some thoughts, usually around a a small, short passage of scripture. And uh, then there's also a number of musical numbers that are interspersed in the broadcast and that fit with the theme. They're selected by the, by the brother who puts together the program and uh, they're recordings from our own church uh, circles, from, from camp and from choirs in Mansfield and different events. So there's, there's, there's a variety of music there. And there was one particular song that was sung by the Mansfield Choir this morning when we were listening that stood out to me. And I'd like to just read the first few verses because I think it is appropriate for this season. The song is called, It's About the Cross. It's not just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sang for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds or the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. There's more to the song, but I think you'll see now why I think it's important we bring this event into focus. The cross is interesting. Christ himself uh, was very explicit to his disciples. He didn't just say, I'm going to die. He said again and again, the Son of Man must be crucified, must be crucified. That must have sounded very odd to the disciples. We read that and and it doesn't register. Yes, of course, Christ died on the cross, so he had to be crucified. On we go. But do you realize that would be like the equivalent of of, of, of me saying, I'm going to need to go to the electric chair 
in two days, or I'm going to need to go for lethal injection in two days. I mean, that was reserved for the very worst criminals. It wasn't like Christ was going to be just assassinated in a dark alley somewhere. He was going to be killed in a very specific way. And of course, Old Testament prophecy, as was highlighted by the gospel writers, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He had to die on that figurative tree, the cross. Why? Why a cross? There's a number of reasons, I think, for that. The cross is interesting. You are probably familiar with the term X marks the spot. Old treasure maps had the treasure marked with an X. Visually, I can tell you, at least from an artistic perspective, that when you intersect two lines, the intersection of those two lines draws your eye like a magnet. It's a visual device. It also represents, at least geographically or or, uh, in terms of uh, cartography, like maps, uh, an intersection represents two ways and, of course, a decision. Which way are you going to go? So I think the idea of the cross is one that's pregnant with meaning. It's, it's, there's all sorts of ways we can think about it, but I, I don't want to get too philosophical about this idea. I think there are some very definite spiritual applications for why we should consider the cross this morning and why, if we are going to understand the Christmas story correctly, we need to view it through the lens of the cross. It's an interesting time of year. I'm not a big fan, I think people know this, of some of the more sentimental trappings of Christmas. I'm just not that way. I guess I'm maybe a little bit jaded or skeptical. But I have to say, it's nice when you go into a store at this time of year that the the music choices are sort of taken up a notch. Uh, The music is much more pleasant, and I think people hear the name God and Jesus and Christ way more at this time of year than any other time of the year. And for that, I'm thankful. For that, I am truly thankful. Uh, It still has not yet been driven out of our culture what this day means and what it's connected to, though I think Satan has done his very best to obscure the meaning and obstruct it. The cross. Viewing the cross, we understand a number of things about God and ourselves. First of all, we understand how horrible sin is in light of the cross. It wasn't just any death that Christ was going to suffer. It was the worst death that man could imagine at the time. It was so bad that there was actually, history tells us, there was a group of women in Jerusalem that would prepare a drink of wine, vinegar, here it says, but what it was was sort of sour wine, mingled with gall. And the idea there is that it was like an anesthetic, something that would dull your senses, dull the pain. And they, they, they would routinely offer this to those who would be crucified because the death was so painful. I won't go into the medical details. You can read those another time if you like. 
but suffice to say it was an extremely painful death. And they offered it to Jesus. He tasted it not knowing what it was. And when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink any more of it. He didn't want his senses impeded by anything. He knew the spiritual stakes of, of that, that, that upcoming struggle. He knew what hung in the balance, and he could not afford to have his mind clouded in any way, not even to take away the pain. So in, in light of the cross, we see how horrible sin is. That there was no other way to deal with the weight of sin than for God to send his own son to suffer the most horrible death possible. And I don't think the physical suffering was the greater part of our Lord's pain. We'll come to that a little bit later in this account. It says, they parted his garments, casting lots. They crucified him, and then they parted his garments. And of course, that was in fulfillment of, of prophecy. And that one line, verse 36, it still, it rings as being so contemporary, so perfect for human nature. And sitting down, they watched him there. There's something about the spectacle of human suffering and pain that we find fascinating. Any accident, what happens on the highway? People automatically slow down and they look to see if someone has been injured or killed. Why do we do that? Why do videos on Twitter, X now I guess it's called, uh, that show destruction and human suffering and horrible car wrecks attract so much attention. I, even for me, it's not like I'm immune to it. We find it captivating. There's something that just makes us stop in our tracks when we see that sort of human su suffering. And there he was. And I, I don't know what went through the minds of all those that were gathered there. I can guess, I can speculate. But the cross was designed to be a spectacle, to catch our attention, to make us notice. Christ could not be killed in a corner. We spoke about this um, on Wednesday night at, uh, during the Bible study. The Jewish leaders would not allow him to die in obscurity. They wanted his death to be public. If God had allowed it, you know, they could have done with Christ as they did with Stephen. Quickly grab a mob and drag him out somewhere and stone him and that's it. Or perhaps an assassin in a back alley. Theoretically, I guess he could have died that way. But that's not what they wanted and that's not what God prophesied. They wanted a shameful public death that would once and for all rid themselves of this troublesome man. It had to be a death of such infamy that nobody would think well of him again. I heard it said, and I don't know if this is true or not, that you know, when the artists in, the, in Europe 
uh, depicted Christ on the cross, they always put a little discreet loincloth about him. I heard the truth of it was much worse. He was crucified stark naked. Shameful. Unpleasant. And sitting down, they watched him there. This was the penalty for sin. There was no other way. Christ himself prayed for another way. He said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There was no other way. This highlights how horrible our sin is. You see, we underestimate our sin. Even in prison. Many of the prisoners who are there for horrible acts don't think that they did anything all that wrong. And I would venture to say that probably all of us here think deep down we're not really all that bad. I think that about myself, and I know it's a problem because I know that in light of the cross. When we don't look at sin through the lens of the cross, we get sin wrong. To us, it looks like a little misstep that needs to be fixed up. Not a horrible rebellion against God that demanded the death of his son if it was to be paid. There's no varnishing it. This is again why we need to look again and again and again to the cross and consider what it was that Christ did and what God was doing on the cross so that we would see our own lives properly. If we start with the wrong idea about God, we get everything else wrong because we won't even understand ourselves. And they set up over his head an accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And if you look in the other gospel accounts, you'll see that it was written in Greek, in Hebrew, and in Latin. That wasn't insignificant either. Pilate wasn't just making sure that everyone understood, though he was. There was more to it than that. It was written in Hebrew, the language of religion. So that they would understand that here is your Messiah, your King, as prophesied. It was written in Greek. That was the language of the intellectuals. Greece was, was the learned capital of the world. That's, that's where people went for an education. Even the Romans, who thought Rome, I mean, Rome was, was very much like a, a modern-day America. You know, they... they, they Anyone who was uh, not Roman was automatically lesser than them. That, that kind of we're number one attitude was first from Rome. But it's interesting that even the Roman nobility would send their sons off to Greece to learn at the feet of Greek teachers so that they could be considered truly educated. And so it was written in Greek that the intellectuals would understand who this man was. But it was also written in Latin. In Latin was the language of power. The Roman legions marched into battle carrying standards that said SPQR on it. 
and it stood for the power of the Senate and the people of Rome. And that standard and that army was a projection of their power into the world, that the powerful would know who this king was. But of course, the irony of it all is that this king was crucified between two thieves, two men who deserved to be there. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and the elders, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the eerie thing. Christ was quoting scripture when he did that. And I wonder if there were those that were gathered around the cross that realized what was going on. Let me read for you the first few verses of the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver him. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Listen to this. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip and shake their head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. I wonder if one or two, or more maybe, that were gathered around that cross that day realized what was going on. That they were ignorant participants in the fulfillment of the prophecy that was written in that 22nd Psalm. They thought they were the ones in control making fun of Christ. And Christ shows them it was exactly as he foretold. The cross was indeed the center point of history. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. In another place it says too, uh, Christ says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We know from the account of the other Gospels that one of those thieves realized what was going on and repented. And the Lord said to him, today thou wilt be with me in paradise. So we see also in the cross the vastness of the mercy of God. You see, we humans have a distorted sense of justice. We get things wrong, especially when it has to do with us. We demand justice for everyone else, but mercy and forgiveness for our own misdeeds. But human mercy and human justice 
is an imperfect reflection of God, God's, God's mercy and God's justice. And we see it correctly in the cross. We see how vast God's mercy is. That those who were crucifying the Son of God would be given opportunity for, for forgiveness, for restoration, even though they had participated in such a gruesome act. Even the leaders who had condemned Christ were not above redemption. Peter says in his sermon in Acts, he says, but my brethren, I wot ye did these things. He says, first of all, that you crucified the Lord of glory when Pilate was determined to release him. He says, but I, I wot or I, I believe or I understand that you did this in ignorance as also did your leaders. But now God calls you to repent. Even those that had been involved in that horrible act were not beyond the reach of God's grace. That's astounding. A human court would never be so gracious. We would demand payment. But God's grace is greater. So we see God's grace in light of the cross. We can understand it properly in light of the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that <clears throat> said, this man calleth for Elias. They heard Eli. And they thought, maybe Elijah's going to come down and deliver him. One last miracle. And straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. They again offered it to him. In another place, we see he again refuses it. They thought he was maybe delir delirious and, and was, was, was seeing things. The rest said, let be, let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. What a human response. Leave him alone, leave him alone. Let's, let's, let's see what's going to happen next. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. I've heard it said that the theme of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is to show how God will shake and remove everything impermanent and imperfect until that which is perfect and permanent remains. And I think that's a pretty good synopsis of Hebrews. We see how the ceremonies of the Old Testament and the priestly offices, though good and holy and right, were impermanent. They were not meant to be an end, only a way to an end. And the end was going to be in Christ. But there's more to that thought than just that. We ourselves also are in that framework. We see our bodies age. We see time and change and decay doing its work. And we are not satisfied 
Our hearts long for something more. There's something inside all of us that says life does not end in a coffin or on a hospital bed. There must be something more. And the good news is there is. Life does not end with our last breath. It goes on. And those impermanent things will be shaken out and removed eventually. And the place that God has designed for us to find rest and permanence is none other than himself. Heaven isn't really a destination. Heaven is a person. It's to be at home in God. Read in Revelation. It says, now is the kingdom of God come down, right? He's become, we, are, we now have that communion with him. That's the thing that makes heaven, heaven. It's not a place. We find rest only in the heart of God. Everything else is impermanent. And so that heavy curtain that divided the holiest place from the holy place was ripped from top to bottom by God himself. And that place, I've, been reading, I've just finished reading through Leviticus in my own meditation, and that place that was so holy that even within the Levites, only certain ones were allowed to see. And it's interesting to see that the holy things were actually covered so that the others wouldn't see them even. It says, lest they die not. It was that serious with God that finally that most holy act, the sacrifice of the Son, the one who entered with his own blood into the holiest place, now made necessary the removal of everything that came before it. And can you imagine the, 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 the shock and the consternation of those priests that came into the temple and looked, and the Holy of Holies was laid open bare the place that hadn't seen sunlight since it was built. Or candlelight even. Now laid open that anyone could see. What a shock. The irony is, they must have repaired that veil. Because the temple still stood afterwards, and I'm sure they wouldn't have left it like that. He stitched it back up again. Do we do that? Are we afraid of a direct encounter with God? Do we make our own curtains to block him off from us, from areas of our life that we don't want him to see? I'm talking to the brothers and sisters now, not the friends. It's a question I need to ask myself. Knowing what a close relationship with God costs, knowing that there are things in my life that need to come out, do I find it more comfortable to retreat behind a curtain of my own making and pretend he's not there? Or do I enter in to the holy place? What do I think about the cross? Is the cross just for sinners? 
Or is the cross for me? And does it require that I take it up daily if I'm going to follow him? And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. I don't understand these two verses, and I'll be frank with you about that. I don't know exactly what this meant, but it just shows the significance of this event, that it seems as if human witnesses were insufficient to explain the importance of what they had just witnessed. There were dead saints now that were going to come back with a message. I find that fascinating. Those that think that our response to God's grace is predetermined in a way that we have no influence on whatsoever. I'm talking about the the classic uh, Reformation view of, of predestination. All you have to do is read the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember what the rich man did when he found out that Lazarus couldn't come over and, and put a drop of water on his tongue because it was, the, the flame was so, was so painful? He said, okay, I've got one more request. I've got five brothers still that are on the other side that are back in the land of the living. Send Lazarus back to them. If he can't come here, send him back to them. And warn them about this place that they don't come in here. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And, and the rich man's got a, got a retort for that. He says, nay, nay, Father Abraham. But if one would come back from the dead, him they'd believe. And he says, they won't believe even if one came back from the dead. Even that wasn't going to be enough. Even the resurrection after the cross was not going to be sufficient for some. But it's interesting to see that the rich man wanted to influence the choice of those who still had the opportunity, the will to decide. He understood what he had done and how he had ended up there. He realized it wasn't just through some uh, uh, cosmic lottery that, that landed him in hell. He wanted to influence the choice of his brothers through Lazarus. And God in his wisdom says, no, no. No supernatural events to do that. I've given my testimony and my word, and I've shown it's true by the resurrection of my son. If they won't believe that, no amount of after-death experiences are going to change the minds of some. That's their own will, and I will not abrogate it. I will not, I will not countermand it. I won't go against it. I will honor the will of those who choose hell over me. God in his will decreed that. And that to me is also startling. A God so great, so loving, so merciful, yet will still allow each one of us to make that decision for ourselves. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, 
this was the Son of God. Scripture says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't get there, you'll get everything else wrong. If you can't understand or even imagine, not that you can understand, if you can't imagine how great God must be and how vast his mercy is, how great his love is, how great his justice is, then nothing that I can say will have any influence or any person who could stand in this wooden box will be able to influence you. If you cannot see your own limitations, your own finite nature, the older I get, the more I realize how short this life is, how quickly it goes by. Seems like only yesterday we had newborns and now I've got teenagers. And I know that as quickly as those years went, it's probably going to get even faster from here on. That prospect on one hand scares me, but on, one, on the other I, I think, that's so right. I'm not made for time. None of us are. We're made for eternity. That was God's intent all along. This life was to be the wake-up call. You know, in the garden, and just to close, I'll end with this. In the garden, after Adam and Eve had taken of that forbidden fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's this conversation in the Godhead that's recorded for us, and I've come back to it many times and read it again. It says, what shall we do? For man has become like one of us. But lest he put forth his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever in this state, put him out of the garden. That was an act of mercy, not an act of retribution. It was so that we would understand what being cut off from God really looks like. For a brief time while we're young, it looks like things are on the upswing, but it doesn't take too long until we realize, hey, I've crested the hill, and now I'm on the backside of that. And life is short and fragile, and I'm fallible, and even the things that I thought I knew, I'm not so sure I know anymore. But there must be one who is perfect. There must be one who is complete, who sees it all and understands it all. And that's where I need to be. I need to find refuge in that heart that loves me and would do such a thing to save my soul. May the Lord add what we've, to what we've heard today. We could continue to meditate on this short passage of Scripture many times over and not exhaust it. But the important thing is what will you do with it? How will you think about it? Not what I will say. Would a brother please select a hymn? Father in heaven, the Spirit is, fo- is spoken through the brother in no uncertain terms, dear uh, Father, that um, has reminded us of the gravity of sin, dear Father, as the world asks why God can't just blithely forgive us from afar. This should be a stark reminder, dear Father, of how seriously you take sin, dear Father, and its effect it's had on us, dear Father. At this time of the year, we often sing, O come, Emmanuel, and release the captives of Israel. Dear Father, this is the ransom that was paid for that, dear Father. It is no small task, and it wasn't cheap, and it wasn't easy, dear Father. This should be a reminder to us all as we explain 
to others, especially the young ones coming up, dear Father, why it had to be this way. We thank you again, dear Father. It's truly an act of mercy, dear Father, and the greatest act of love ever, ever performed. Truly a turning point in history, dear Father, and one that changed the world forever since then. We are grateful for it, dear Father, and should never forget at this time of year that as we ask for Emmanuel to come to be with us, that we find ourselves in a dilemma we cannot get ourselves out of. No matter how hard we try, dear Father, no amount of intellectual assent, dear Father, no, no therapies, no anything. We are, in a, we are in a place we cannot get ourselves out of. No matter how good we think we are, dear Father, this sin of this environment of sin that we are in, dear Father, keeps us trapped here, and the only way out is through our Lord and Savior. Remind us this throughout this month, dear Father, as we try to dispense with all of the sentimentality of what goes on, dear Father, of what this event means, dear Father, and how it applies to the cross indeed. A very prescient, very um, stark reminder of what this season means to us all. We, we continue to pray, dear Father, for those who are those who are ill and those who are struggling at this time, dear Father, no, we are not made for time, as the brother said. We are made for eternity. Let us keep this in our hearts, write it on our minds, dear Father, and go forth with this. It is indeed good news, as we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would a brother please select a concluding hymn? So what do we do in light of what we've heard this morning? I can't answer all the whys for you. I don't know why God is so holy or why the price had to be so high. I only know that it was. And God never bothered to explain those things to me. He just tells me, what to do with that knowledge. I hope all of us can answer with the writer of the Zion's Harp. We started with hymn number 226, and I'd like to read the last three verses. In humility, dear Savior, know I thou for me hast died. Though I was thy foe, Redeemer, thou for me wast crucified. Silence, keep I, humbly weep I. Thus, through thee, I'm justified. Soul and body and thy living, all hast thou, Lord, given for me. Should I not to thee be giving all that I may have and be? Thine, Lord holy, I am solely. I give all my heart to thee. Through the power of thy dying, into thy death, Lord, draw me. Let my body, all my being, there be nailed, Lord, with thee. Gentle, stilly, may my will be to my love give purity. May the Lord dismiss us with his blessing. Amen. <laughs>